Today's sermon text is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. This is our, gosh, I think our third or fourth week of, of our current series, uh, Politicking, or Politic King, however you want to pronounce that, uh, Politicking. And right now and, and through today, the poise of this series has been to try to shape your poise as you think through your political ideology and also, and more importantly, I think, your political discourse with other people. This is a discipleship issue. You know that if you have a Facebook account. This is a discipleship issue. So right now, we're talking about our poise politically, the posture of our heart politically. In the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into some specifics politically, some specifics. So... Um, the first uh, verse that uh, Tanya read today is very familiar to many Christians is the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission. is where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he commissions his church to go into all the world and make disciples of every person they come in contact with. Go and make disciples. Go teach them how to follow me. Go teach them how to follow me. Recruit them to me and teach them how to follow me. I don't think a lot of us realize how political the Great Commission is. It's very, very political. Um, government, as we talked about in week one, was designed by God. When God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, multiply fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it, he was giving them political directions govern this world well. And remember, that was before sin had entered the world. Before the world was fallen, the world needed government. And so government is God's idea. The problem is, is that we are now practicing government in a fallen world. We're now practicing government in a fallen world. The purpose of government now on the other side of the fall, and I'm referring to Adam and Eve's fall, is to be, bring restraints on people. 
There's other reasons for politics. But primarily, the reason why government exists is to put restraints on people, on society, because without those restraints, society would devolve into total and utter chaos. Society would devolve into chaos. But it would be better... It would be better if people willingly submitted to King Jesus. It would be better that way. It'd be better that way. This is what uh, Ezekiel was prophesying in Ezekiel chapter 36, a very political statement that he makes. A lot of times we don't realize that when the prophets are foretelling a time when every person will be filled with the Spirit and have new kinds of hearts... Hearts that are shaped by God, that this is a political statement because much of the Old Testament prophecy was given in the context of anticipating God's judgment on wicked and rebellious Israel, prophesying while God's judgment was happening, or prophesying after it had happened and Israel was licking its wounds. Not abandoned by God but judged by God. And this is what we see here in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28, when the prophet says this, speaking of a day in the future when God will show up and do wonderful things in our lives. And this is what he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He's talking about the coming of the spirit that converts us supernaturally so that we go from being in a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that inside of us. Why does this need to happen? Because while our hearts are in a state of spiritual death, sin runs rampant in our culture. All sorts of injustices, all sorts of sin, all sorts of murders and idolatries and envy and all the stuff the Bible talks about is a result of people's broken, darkened hearts. And so God politically has big political aspirations. A world that is filled with people who love him and honor him as king. That is thoroughly political totally political. He says in verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I love that. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. There will be an impulse in you that is greater than your addictive tendencies, the Holy Ghost. It's appropriate to say ghost there rather than spirit because, you know, it sort of has that, "Mm." The Holy Ghost, you know. The Holy Ghost will be that inner impulse inside of you that will override your affections for evil. It will overtake your need to justify yourself. It will obliterate your pride, your insecurity, your competitive spirit. It will destroy all the things that cause so much relational toxicity, not just outside of this room, but inside of this room. 
And as followers of Jesus with converted hearts, with new hearts, we get to begin that process now in anticipation of the day when Jesus returns and fully cleanses this world. We get to live in eternal life now. Eternal life. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So be careful and and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You will obey God. Not because he'll have his foot on your throat, but because the spirit inside of you will give you new affections and the law of God and the ways of God will be beautiful to you. Beautiful to you. I know some of you may be thinking, well, it's not beautiful to me yet. Am I not not saved? It's a process. On this side of the second coming of Jesus, it's a gradual process where those of us who have been caught by Jesus are gradually turned into his image, shaped by him, reformed by him, reformed by him. So the church's primary calling... Because the Great Commission is fleshing that out. Ezekiel's words are fleshed out through the Great Commission. Going into all the world, led by the Holy Spirit, leading them into the way of the cross. These people are converted by the Holy Spirit and they are given new affections. Their hearts are made clean by God. Hearts are made clean by God. This is thoroughly political. That's our calling. This is our primary calling, my friends. Our primary calling is a political calling. We are commissioned to live in our world and call people to submit, to surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's politics, living under the rule of a king. So we must be careful not to invest our energies, to obsess unduly over human political affairs because human political affairs will not restore this world. I am not saying that human political affairs aren't helpful. I'm not saying that they don't have any merit. I'm talking about the posture of our hearts in which we obsess and make an idol out of human politics and look at God's politics as something spiritual on the side, something with little impact. So we better take matters into our own hands. This election will determine the future of America. No, it won't. God has. God has. God has already determined that. God has. That's why we can rest and not live in that kind of anxiety. We are called to promote the Great Commission, which is God's politic. And so that brings up probably an objection from some folks. That sounds like an over-spiritualization, Chris. That's sort of futile. I want to take you to John chapter, uh, John chapter uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. And I want you to look at this with new eyes. Luke 3, 1 through 3. These verses are very interesting. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Anybody want to guess what country he was the president of? Anybody? 
Rome, the Roman Empire, from northern Africa to Asia, Tiberius Caesar ruled all of that space. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, that's like the county that Jerusalem's in, okay? (laughs) And Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, the a few years before Jesus was born, Israel was divided after Herod the Great died into several areas. And his sons were given those regions to govern. This is one of his sons. He reigned over Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. Herod the Tetrarch. So he's being Tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother, Philip, Tetrarch of the region of uh, uh, Etruria. And Trachonitis. And Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the, not Texas, that's over in the Middle East. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Man, that's a mouthful right there. Anybody think that sounds a little bit political? Now, I know this is the way that the ancients used to date their writings. This is like writing September whatever, 2016. This is the way they would date their writings. But this also gives us a fly-on-the-wall view of the kind of political muck that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ emerged in. This wasn't, these, these weren't peaceful times. These weren't peaceful times. Look at all of these rulers. Some of them sort of despotic. I mean, you've got Caesar, Pontius Pilate, who was the one who was responsible for the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. Herod, Herod, his brother Philip. All of these people ruling over Israel. And then you've got Annas and Caiaphas, dual high priests, who also not just were ministers, but they were also religious political authorities in the lives of the Israelites. This is where John the Baptist emerged in this context. And it says this, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Proclaiming Donald Trump. No. No, he was not wielding a human political sword. He wielded something different. He went around all that region in with all of these severe and ruthless rulers breathing down his neck and he went about proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, how many of you follow Jesus? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. We're in church. Raise your hand. How many of you believe that John the Beck, keep it up, I'm going to put your hands down so fast. Oh, my my arm got sore in three seconds. How many of you believe that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus and prophesied of his coming? And you believe he was a legit prophet? You Keep your hand in the air. You should do that. That's good doctrine. Okay, so. Okay. Look around. Look at all these hands in the air. So you believe then that John was sent by God into this political mess. You believe that? And what did John go about preaching anointed by the Spirit? What? Repent. Not 
get out the vote. He didn't say that. Now, I know they were in an empire and they couldn't vote back then. I get that. I was hoping you wouldn't notice that, but, you know, that, that is the case. But still, still, and that does complicate the interpretation here because we do have rights and liberties in our country, in this empire, so to speak, that they didn't have back then. But still, the overriding message, the way that God saw fit to bring about help and justice and beauty to a broken society was through the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. If that leaves you wanting more, it's not because the gospel's broken. It's because the messengers have been. The gospel has been sidelined to spiritual when it should be spiritual. The gospel is the only answer to our society's ills, the gospel. And if we're not leading off with that, then there is political idolatry in our lives. We have got to lean on the gospel more than anything else. The gospel. The gospel. Today we like the idea of evangelism, but we marginalize it as spiritual. Are we to believe, my friends, that racism... Terror, spousal abuse, a broken social security system, they say, child abuse, the sex trade, and all the other issues we have facing us. Are we to believe that the next president is going to fix this? I'm not saying that the next president is inconsequential. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that many of us, the posture of our heart is we are putting all the weight of our convictions on who's going to be voted in for the next president and maybe we might touch the gospel some. There is a more fundamental politic that we must lean on than what's happening right now in our little corner of the world. There's something more fundamental than that. More fundamental. The Great Commission, my friends, is a call to align ourselves with a different government, the kingdom of God. Yet in doing so, here's, here's what's amazing. Here's what our world gets out of it if we do this. If we align ourselves with the kingdom of God, what happens is we become the servants of King Jesus. We become the most peaceful, law-abiding justice-loving citizens in our society if we really align with King Jesus. We're not talking about being so heavily minded we're no spiritually good. We're talking about being so heavily minded we are the most good in our world. The most good. The Great Commission was given to every believer so every believer is called to God's politics. So what's the first point? If you're following your bulletin, the Great Commission is our God-given politic. Here's the second one. Here's, our, here's the second one. Obsession with human politics distracts us from our God-given politic. Obsession with human politics distracts us from our God-given politic. Because politics is an imperfect and often subjective science, some of the most well-intentioned Christians 
will continue to remain ideologically divided. We will. We will. There aren't easy answers anymore for abortion, for racism, and for all the other issues that we have. There are ideological differences when it comes to correcting the national debt, when it comes to fixing poverty in our country. There are ideological differences, and there are people on quote, and I hate to use this, but it's, we'll all get it immediately. There are Christians, devout followers of Jesus, on both sides of the aisle that just simply disagree on how these issues are to be fixed. It's not a question of good guys and bad guys. And if it's that simple in your mind, good guys and bad guys, then man, you need to really question and assess your, your political views. It's just not that easy anymore. We'll get into that in a coming talk. We will. We will get into that. These differences, though, aren't necessarily bad. They're not. As a matter of fact, there is a problem if all of our friends' opinions only reflect our own. Now, here's what I don't mean by that. Well, I go to a community group with, like, Democrats. There's a Republican in the PTA that I go to once a month. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, is there room in your deepest friendship circle for people who don't think like you? Your most intimate friends, do they all share your views, your prejudices, your biases? Do they? That's not necessarily bad. I'm not saying don't be friends with them anymore. But I think you need to broaden your friendship circle. We all live in these political enclaves where everybody amens us. You know, I agree, I agree, I agree. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. We hear that and we can't, we can't even have an objective conversation with somebody that disagrees with us. We take it as personal rejection. The fact is, is not every, not, none of us are all right. None of us are. None of us are. These differences are rooted in emotion and emotion can quickly bring about dissension in relationships, which is why some people looked at me when they said, when they figured, when they discovered I was preaching on politics, they're like, dude, better you than me. Had a couple of preachers tell me that. I want you to imagine someone visiting our church next Sunday. She's not been to church in years and is coming because of a providential crisis in her life that has opened her heart to God. And I want you to imagine furthermore that she is a staunch Democrat. Her parents and grandparents were all highly involved in Democratic Party politics. But because of the brokenness of her heart, despite that, I'm kidding, because of the brokenness of her heart, she gives her life to Jesus. And you can apply this to a Republican anecdote as well. I'm just sure somebody's going to read into this. She gives her life to Jesus. She visits a community group where she begins to make promising new friendships. Promising new friendships. And within the next few months, something really strange begins to happen. The person that she stands with at her community group with that red cup, drinking Diet Coke, who always hugs her and 
encourages her and shares Bible verses with her and talks about the you know roll tide and all that kind of stuff or Mississippi State, <laughs> sorry, uh, our brokenness and our triumphs. Um, the person who stands there and talks about these things with her, she notices that this same person always makes really barbed, judgmental, political comments on Facebook. And she has no category for this. It's like, what? It's like she's dealing with a person with two different personalities. This person says things on Facebook or social media that he would never or she would never say in a community group gathering, in a Bible study, in a prayer meeting, over coffee. Yet there is sort of a brazen, almost egotistical boldness in the way that this person expresses his or her political ideology. She has no category for that. What is that? What do we do with this? There's a text in Romans 14, 13 through 17. The Apostle Paul, anointed by the Spirit of Jesus, says these words. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. What does it mean to judge? Don't judge me. I won't judge you. What What does that mean? But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Okay, interesting. So he's saying that judging someone is to put a stumbling block in front of them, which, and the idea is that they get tripped in their faith. They fall down. Okay, so what is he talking about here? I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. What on earth is he talking about? He's talking about food. He's speaking to a church that is primarily made up of Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus. And these Jewish people are going to church with Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus. Gentiles who grew up eating bacon every morning. Fried bologna every day. Even at idolatrous feasts. Then they come to Jesus and the same food they're serving down the street at Bale's Cafe, they're still eating at the potluck dinner. And these Jewish believers who grew up under the law of Moses knowing, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you do not eat pork because pork's of the devil. (laughs) All of a sudden, Jesus shows up and makes pork okay. That's sort of a summation of the gospel. He makes pork okay. Jesus makes bacon okay. It's not off limits anymore. Jesus actually accomplished a lot more than that. But that's one of the benefits of following Jesus is we get to eat bacon. The candy that grows on pigs. Okay? So. So. These people are now going to church together. And you've got Gentiles that are eating pork. And they're loving it. And they got barbecue sauce all over their lips. And you've got Jews who are going... We don't know if we can eat this. And you got Gentiles that are saying, listen, don't you remember what the Apostle Paul said? That all foods have been declared clean? 
That our righteousness is not in what we eat or observing these types of technicality laws, but it's found in putting our faith in Jesus. Come on, man, you get on board. And Paul doesn't side with the Gentiles who were saying, come on, get on board. He sides with the brothers and sisters who even though it's okay to eat pork, he says, you know what? Don't be a stumbling block to them. Listen to what he goes on to say here. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, grieved, you are no longer walking in love. Now we're talking about food here. I think you can apply this to political discourse. I really do. I know it's not a wash. But there are some principles here that I think we can apply. We're talking about when it concerns food, an issue that is totally on the table. You live by your own conviction. If you don't want to eat pork, don't eat pork. If you do want to eat pork, do it. But don't judge anybody. Don't judge anybody because they eat pork and they're not taking care of themselves. And don't judge people who don't eat pork as being super spiritual. Or as young in the faith and naive and they need to grow up and learn God's word better. That's what he's saying to them. I think you can apply the same thing because most of our politics today, and we're going to talk about how this, how this washes out in the coming weeks, but most of the politics that we fight and argue about today are gray area issues that you've got different ideologies that, that represent different positions on how to address these things. And we're judging people. And we're making it uncomfortable, uncomfortable for people to live in relationship with us. We're making it really uncomfortable for them. We're we're a stumbling block to them. My friends, if we are going to offend anybody for some reason, let it be because the gospel essentially, inherently, is offensive to the unbelieving heart. It is. The Bible says this. Galatians 5.11 describes the offense of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the cross is foolishness to people who are perishing. It's an offense to people. It's an offense. But let us heed the words of the Apostle Paul dealing with the same issue in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's my question. How can you better serve people in the way that you talk about politics. How can you better serve other Christians and non-Christians in the way that you talk about politics? Could your political discourse take on a godlier dimension? Could it? If you say no to that, then what you're saying is, is that my political discourse is totally perfect in the eyes of God. I'll be happy to pray for you later if you really believe that. Listen to what James says, James chapter 3, verse 6. He says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. James is very poetic. I love his words. Look at verse 9. James 3, verse 9. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
He's talking about general people. He's not just talking about believers here. Because every person on earth was made in the image of God. Every person on earth. No matter how fouled up they are, no matter how darkened their hearts are, every person was made in the image of God. Every person. Every person. Verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Whoa, who's he talking about? Who's doing that blessing and cursing? And he says, my brothers, followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, these things ought not to be so. So James is calling out some issue of hypocrisy where with one side of their mouth, they're pronouncing blessings on people. And with the other side of their mouth, they're pronouncing cursings on people. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, you hear James, you hear his tone pleading with people. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So you see this contrast. How is it possible that a person who follows Jesus, that blessings come out of his mouth followed by cursings? How is that possible? And he's talking about the way that we treat people, both Christian and non-Christian. Believers mustn't nurture a subcategory of communication in which it is permissible to shame people, to condescend, to be unkind, or to mock. We mustn't nurture. We mustn't talk, go to prayer meetings and praise Jesus on Sunday mornings and then have a little thread on our feed where we can be really ugly about our political views. Grapes don't come from fig trees. Cursings don't come from the mouths of Jesus' people. And that's part of the problem. How many of us, I wonder, when we make comments... Verbally, but more, more systemically on our social media, are the, they're not necessarily mean-spirited in the sense that they're overtly mean. But how often are we saying things that are intended to just give a sting of shaming? A sting of shaming. We're okay if they feel a little bit bad after they read that. We want them to because they're stupid. That, really, that's what we think, because they're stupid. So the, I'm going to shame a little bit, because that always worked with me when my parents did that to me as a kid, you know, shaming, you know, not my parents, but, you know, your parents. So um, <laughs> shaming works so good. Doesn't it, like, want, doesn't it motivate you to change your behavior? You know, you're an idiot, Kenny. You, you want to come on, hang out with me now? <laughs> no, no, Kenny, you're not an idiot. You're awesome. Um, so here's what my recommendation is. Political discourse. Shut up. No, I'm kidding. Um, my, my recommendation is this. If you must post or say political things, do so in a conversational way. Make it safe for someone to respond. I'm not saying don't believe deep down what you're saying. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you've got to agree to disagree. Talk. Dialogue. I don't even have a problem with a good, robust debate. Sometimes those become adversarial, so you've got to be careful. But there's nothing wrong with that. 
I am saying that if you have to launch into something, be dialogical. Invite feedback. Do it in a conversational way. Speak, if you can, face to face. Man, I've seen relationships take a dramatic turn for the better when they went from being Twitter warriors and adversaries to sitting down at a coffee table at Starbucks and looking at each other in the eye. It's something powerful that takes place when our humanity is restored with presence, being together, being together, being together. And then this, remain humble. When I say humble, I don't mean be overtly meek in your posture. A lot of us look at humility as just a behavior. It's not a behavior. It's first a posture of the heart. What does humility look like? Curiosity. Humility is the cultivated belief that, you know what? I've got some strong beliefs on things, but I'm probably wrong in some ways. I probably am. I probably am. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright. He says, you know, I'm probably wrong about 20% of the time. I just don't know which 20% it is. I think we all should have that view of ourselves. I'm probably wrong at least some. I'm not aware of where I'm wrong and how I'm wrong. So I'm going to be curious and talk with people rather than judge them because I want to explore the weaknesses in my own intellectual armor. I need to do that. Remain curious. Remain curious. Cultivate an inner belief that you may be wrong. This is a crucial practice in a world that is more than satisfied with sound bites and oversimplified views. And then finally, I'm not going to preach this text. We've run out of time. But I will say this. Prayer should be the foundation and the fuel of our God-given politic. First of all then, brothers, 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all in high positions. Notice that he doesn't just say, petitionally pray, that they'll get their acts together. Look at the tone of what it looks like to pray for rulers, and not just American rulers, but Chinese rulers, and North Korean rulers, and Iranian rulers, and Iraqi rulers, and Saudi rulers, and Canadian rulers, and Japanese rulers, and Australian rulers, all kings. He says this is what our posture should be when we pray. And it's characterized by these words, supplications, a bleeding of our heart before God, prayers, requests, intercessions, a carrying of the weight of the political drama and garbage in our world that's primarily causing so many believers to suffer. Thanksgivings. He doesn't say when you pray for rulers, carry this angry, unkind angst. Dadgum president. He doesn't say pray that way for our leaders. He says pray with thanksgiving. Be thankful. I know that some of us are afraid that our religious civil liberties are about to disappear. Some of that's just based in fear and anxiety. I'm not saying that's not going to happen. But a lot of it's just fear and anxiety that drives us. And we don't realize 
that no other time in human history in a country like ours have people had the religious freedom that they do right now. Even with the threats looming on the horizon, never in human history have there ever been people with with the religious civil liberties that we do have right now. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. That shouldn't motivate our our voting or our ideology. I'm not saying that. But we are driven by so much anxiety that we can't just stop. Thank you, Jesus. And we're going to church today, man. We're worshiping Jesus today. I got a friend who's a missionary in Russia. They just came out with a law that you can only evangelize inside church buildings now. He's a missionary there. He's got a lot more to be worried about than we do here. A lot more. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Jesus, I beg you, shape our hearts. Reform our hearts. Cause our hearts to look like your heart, Jesus. Take away from us our bitternesses. Our meannesses. Take away from us our vengeful spirits. Give us a heart of flesh, Lord Jesus. Change us. We beg you, O God, in your name.